In a family unit, the child is often at the centre of conflict. And when it escalates into domestic abuse, not only does it place them in physical danger, but it impacts on their emotional and psychological security, their sense of safety. In this interview, I speak with Grace, who has bravely released her book, aptly called The Child. Well, I, otherwise I would have lost my child. Like, regardless of how amazing my judge was, um, if I hadn't fought black and blue, um, I have no doubt they would have won. It's a unique story of how to and what to know and expect when thrusted into the Family Court of Australia. Often the children are not heard and not seen. Their voice is a void. As part of our Women's Safety Series, Grace shares how she rose to the challenge of self-representation after being financially strapped and unjustly accused of being a risk to her own child. Just as this book is being released, another woman has been killed. Her child left without her mother and a family now deep in grief after losing their daughter. Her friends are left heartbroken. This all-too-familiar story is being reported every week as thousands of other women stay in abusive relationships to protect their children. I want to thank Grace for her openness and bravery in raising the real issue. This is about the powerful versus the powerless. Nobody explained anything. I, I literally, I had run and fled and I was so, so battered and had no self-belief. I was, I used to shake when the messages had come through. That was seven years and I hid for a very long time from him. But the day I stood up and said, look, I'm not doing 400 kilometres of driving every weekend anymore because I was doing all the driving so he had no idea where I lived. And it got to the point where I couldn't afford it and I could, could not sustain it. People were saying to me, we're losing you to this world. Enough is enough. If I'd been weaker or maybe not as well equipped, you know, like or you know, as um, that, that's not that usually intelligent, but I know I grasped the concept quickly, and I kept thinking anybody either this is English as second language or you know isn't in a professional setting now with corporate clients would seriously struggle. This is this is not a place that people belong trying to self-represent. Like it's. It, the very few will get through and be really successful. When I put down my foot and said, I can no longer do what you're asking me to do, and he came after my daughter, something flicked a switch. And um, I, there, there was, it was, I think I put in there, you coat this lioness, and that was your biggest mistake because you could have done anything to me at all, and he did. But when you were going to threaten my child's livelihood and happiness, I was going to fight with nail. So I, I, Something kicked in, and I and I was blessed that I could understand and, and root around and find what I needed. Um, but I made so many mistakes and just relearned some mistakes and went back and had another go. So um, it was just sheer determination that nobody was going to hurt that child. And I think that that comes across really strongly. Um, I think it is the protective behaviours that we engage in to protect our children. Mm. So. Um, apart from the the driving 400 kilometres a week, what else were you doing um, to make sure that you were safe? Um, 
not poking the bear, not upsetting him. Uh, I never asked for child support. I never asked for a cent. I paid for everything. It, it, it further drove me into kind of almost half poverty. Um, if I got a message saying, I don't want it this weekend because I'm busy and I'm halfway to his place, hundreds of kilometres, I just turn around and go, you know, no problem, yes sir, no sir. I I was submissive and hated myself, but I would I I just kept thinking I cannot I cannot poke the bear because the result will be shocking for the for the child. And was it like that in the relationship as well when you were with him? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. And I've I've said to people and they've really resonated. He would come home at the end of the day and I would open the door if I was home first and I would walk to the door thinking, who will I be? How will I speak? What will I say? What won't I ask so that I don't spark his rage? What what mask will I put on and see if that works today? Yeah, and I love that. And there is a triple M formula for that and that is the masking, the manipulation and the management and how mm-hmm. how we, you know, engage with that other person to mm-hmm. to, to say to feel safe. Not even to stay safe, but to actually feel safe in the in the house with them. Like, and that can yeah. go on for years. Oh, yeah, and it was years, and he never touched me. Like, and that's the biggest danger, I think, um, for people in domestic violent relationships. He never touched me. He never even really raised a hand. But there was a, the flick of an eye. There was the, you know, an eyebrow would drop, and he'd stare at me, or he'd flinch, or he'd flex. And I would just run cold. Um, I, I think I always knew he probably wouldn't hit me, but he held that over me for years. Yeah. So what was it, do you think, before that, that sort of was, was it like, for me, I describe it as an uncomfortableness. Like that, that's the only way that I could really describe, you know, how you could respond to those, you know, those looks or the words like, and, you know, reading a word off a page is, it doesn't have the same impact when it's not in their voice or their tone. Mm. So you just knew what sort of mood they were in, even when you saw them, or you knew how drunk they were, or you knew if they were um, stressed out, and you would immediately change. Did you find that that was something that you had to, like you adapted to quickly, or was there were there contentious points where you were in conflict? In the beginning, I did everything to avoid it. Like I, there was almost an aura around him where I went, "It's not going to be a great afternoon. It's not going to be a great evening." And do whatever you can to soften him and make him happy. Um, it did start because I was um, quite successful in in my company that I was running, and he was getting very angry by that and feeling. Uh, he could see I was starting to get slightly financial and starting to get to a position where I may almost be a threat to his his um, persona that he put on for everybody else who would say the classic line, but he's such a great guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a nice guy. They call, they call oh, him nice guy. Everyone loved him. The world's nicest, happiest, <laughs> most helpful guy. Um, but I think he started to see I was coming into my own a little bit and we did start to have some clashes. And I think the night that I decided I'm going to have to get out before something happens to me or my daughter, he turned around and he just said coldly, um, you will respect me and mm. stared at me and he flexed his shoulders. And I thought, is today the day? That, and I almost wanted it, to be honest. It, it would have been 
because I would have been able to go next door or go to the place and say, look, he's he's belted me because he was a big, strong man. But it, that was the control he had over me. I had no proof. I had nothing other than everyone thinking how wonderful he was and starting to doubt me. Yeah, I think that, that those seeds of doubt are planted long before we actually even work it out because they're lathered in compliments or they're lathered in gifts or whatever that placating behaviour is that they want to give you so that you give the love back. Now, I want to dive straight into the book because you hit everybody uh, in the face with a slap, literally, um, in your first chapter when you write, you have been served. Um, Now, the book is an an incredible tale. I call it innovative. It's a, a different way of, I guess, explaining a system and a process all the detail that you've included, that it really helps others. But talk to me about how this came about. I originally, and I think I'd, I'd touch on it, I originally, as I was going through it, um, the injustice of what I was having to do um, made me just really angry and the fact that there was no pathway for people to self-represent. The only clear pathway and the information you were given was to get lawyered up and to find money that no regular person has. So the injustice of that was, well, there has to be a book, there has to be a a document, and I could find absolutely nothing. Um, And I thought, well, I'm going to do this because I I was already financially ruined. I I couldn't borrow or beg or steal any more money. So... God blessed me with some brains and I knew I would fight to the death for my daughter's well-being, not to keep her, but to make sure she was paramount in whatever decisions were made. And I thought, well, I'll just document and make a play. I kept calling it a playbook because in kind of a professional setting, we have playbooks for our clients on when this happens, you use this playbook. And I just kept writing out the, the journey of what I was doing, how I was actioning it and thinking, well, I'll create a book that may help people get through family court and only spend $400, $450. But as the journey kept going and um, the corruption I saw, the lies, the deceit that was rewarded, I st- suddenly thought I don't want anyone to have to ever even read this or do this. This is this is a document that I'm creating that I don't want anyone to have to actually have to go down this path. So it, it while I was writing it and I thought, the system's going to be there. That legislation's going to be there for a while, yes. Um, and smarter people than me are going to have to argue to get a new legislation. But I'll write this book of how you do it and how you go about it. And yes, I was incredibly blessed and lucky with my judge. But had I lost, I would have lost but not been financially devastated as well. So. Mm. I got to the point where I thought, well, I'll still create this book or this playbook, as I call it, and how to go about getting it up with the hope that then when I'm through it, I can also be a point where people can reach out and say, I've got your book. I need advice on this. Um, whether that's an org of volunteers that can help, you know. So now the only process is to go through family court. But by the end of it, it was our, our children don't belong on the battlefield. It's that we put them on the centre line. We put parent A on one side, parent B on the other side, and we just fire bullets straight through the kids at each other. It's it's an abhorrent setting for children, um, and it's only exacerbating violence. So I started to see a way that could be 
let's get them back out into a conciliatory space where there's one person, only one, managing the family unit of industry. Um, and it, it really, towards the end of the book, that's where I get to that children don't belong in court. If, you, if, if you're a couple who's breaking up and you want to fight over property, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> but when there's a little person in the middle that doesn't belong in a court of law with some great or hideous judge hearing maybe two or three hours of evidence fired over three or four years to try and decide what happens to this child. Yeah, and, and by then circumstances have changed anyway, haven't they, really? Like, I mean, yeah. children are continually growing and needing different things. So when my child started the child, she was just a little, little girl. And by the end of our journey, which was quite short compared to many I've spoken to, she was taller, stronger, and more informed almost than me. She'd done her reading. And people said to me, oh, you shouldn't let your child your child's feet do the walking. You know, I always pushed back and said, why can't she have a say in this? She's articulate and smart. And forensic psychologists have said, no, she's, She's not being manipulated. She has her own ideas. Why can't she have a voice in all this process? What What is so wrong with that? They just need to be considered, don't they? They just need to be included because it is actually happening to them. It's happening to them and it's, it's having lifelong impact. And very quickly you can see children that are being manipulated. If I had manipulated my daughter to, for whatever gain I wanted, it would have come out. But, but even the worst family consultant that I went through, she disliked me intensely, mm. um, but she could not fault the child and she said she's smart, articulate, she knows what she wants and for very good reasons. So ch- tr- children are not good liars, I don't think. The, the truth comes out, so you've got to let them have a voice. Well, and even if the truth doesn't come out, you actually can see the fear in them from wanting to mm-hmm. speak up. Like... Mm. I mean, I've got children that certainly don't mind saying no to me, but they're mm. scared of other people. Mm. So you, mm-hmm. you you can tell straight away what that what that's looking like, and that is that that manipulation, isn't it? So to, I want to talk to mm. you about that, and before we move on to the corruption word that you use, because I love that. But in terms of the manipulation, what what were some of the behaviours that you saw playing out, especially inside the courtroom or the evidence that was being presented? It probably stemmed from uh, the false accusation. So I was I was pinned with um, a notice of risk to my daughter with the neglect and abuse. Um, there was zero data to back it up. There was no conversations with the child's school, doctor, friends, coaches. Um, there was no evidence anywhere that this, this, there was a, a shred of fact around this. And yet this was lodged into the Commonwealth portal and then presented to a judge. Mm, Um, and the very first meeting in court I was expecting the solicitor and you know the flowing black robe which is quite intimidating and I've since learned on my journey that a barrister and a solicitor are more or less the same qualification (laughs) but one one has a job to argue in court and the other one has the day job but I saw it as a, a, a threat straight across to me that this barrister stood there and used words like um, repugnant and I think another word might have been r- rumbunctious and, you know. Belligerent and, yes, all the <laughs> high-intensity words that we go, really? And and bluffing and kind of almost mocking and laughing, me standing there shivering in, in fear, not even sure whether I should approach the table where you speak or not, even though I was self-represented. Like I, I, I stood halfway because I thought, 
am I allowed to be at that table that you speak to the judge? Do I stay back where the, the common people are? And his bluff and his kind of his bravado that he was, it was a walk in the park for him, was mm. just blew my mind when he had absolutely no facts. Yeah, it certainly plays out when there's no facts. Mm, mm. And then the false report um, that he presented to the judge that there was a, a report about me at Department of Human Services, which froze me to my call um, to only find out that then all it was was a, a generated document that said the father had rang and complained, but nothing was found. Um, and that took hours and hours of my life questioning what had I done to someone's child. Mm, wow. Well, let's move on to corruption. Tell me your experience with that because I think that for people it's quite easy to identify but a little bit more difficult to articulate. I think some of the the biggest concerns I had, well, actually I had concerns with so many different, and I call them silos. Um, there's, a, there's a whole gamut of different bodies and organisations that you have to or you end up taking on. Um, none of them talk to each other. None of the information is transferred across. So when the child's father turned up at the house, threatening, yelling um, and breaking the restraining order to say to stay 200 metres away, when we finally got down to the police station and they said, oh, absolutely, this will go to court, that's a, a, a definite breach of the intervention order, that can't happen. And I find out 12 weeks later that because his solicitor had suggested he attend my property to, to collect the child, prosecutor said oh look, we, we don't go against our own we won't proceed to court because the solicitor's involved are you kidding now, <laughs> oh my and, god and i kicked and screamed and i took Who is it to he? the highest level <laughs> and what authority does this solicitor have to change orders oh my god that is that is corruption at its best yes yeah and then but what that's uh, nearly what colluding really that's, it's terrible it it was absolute collusion so i took it as far as i could to the minister for police who then ordered a full investigation and we went straight back to, okay, tell me everything that happened, all the emails, all the evidence, um, including um, emails from his solicitor saying, I've sent my client to your house, just give over the child. Um, when I sent all of that back to this senior sergeant to, again, launch a formal investigation, it still came back, we're sorry, Miss Aura, we won't be proceeding to court, we cannot win this. That it wasn't documented um, because he solicited involved, but the conversation on the phone was we just won't go after our own. Yeah, that's high-level corruption, isn't it? That is, yeah, the de very definition, corruption. yeah. yeah, Absolutely. And it's um, like they're, they're playing so judge so themselves. Many, I saw so many versions of this, um, even the report to the Department of Human Services about me, the document that I got to see to say, Yes, a complaint's been made, but we've sent police officers, or we've sent, yeah, we've sent the police officers round to the house to check on the welfare and nothing was reportable. I've never seen a police officer at my house, not once. Oh, wow. For me, that was okay because my daughter wasn't being abused. But how many children in abused houses are they saying we sent somebody around and they're fine? How, is that happening to people who desperately need police to turn up? I was horrified that this document had been subpoenaed. And when I kind of kicked and screamed and said, that never took place, it was, oh, oh, oh let's move on. You know, you, you're, not, you're not guilty of it. So that's good for you. Tick box, let's go. Move on to the next lie that we have to contend with. There was never any, any, never any justice. 
Yeah. And I think it really does depend, like you said, I've dealt with solicitors who talk to me about, oh, it's not relevant or it's not mm-hmm. relatable. And you're going, yeah, for you it's not because it makes your client look bad. Yeah. Um, of course you're not going to discuss it. Of course you're not going to, you know, defend it or even you know, or respond to it because mm-hmm. you can't. But in a yep. way it sort of works against them because there's all this stuff that gets left. But, again, when you get to court, is it relevant and relatable and does it matter? You get to the you get in front of the judge six, eight, nine months down the track, and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of evidence. She can't. She needs two or three pages of just clear facts. So the amount that you have to write just to try and get your point through, um, and never gets dealt with. It. Perjury is not even considered. Um, but I read up and read up and, and made myself very informed about my affidavits because I took them so seriously. Mm. Um. But the, the notice of risk and abuse w- were sworn in a document that, that I was guilty and this was sworn back. It was never, once it was dismissed, well, there's no. Yeah, and I mean, that's done a lot of damage as well to you personally, like whether it's your confidence or your capacity. What are, what are some of the things that were going through your mind when that sort of stuff happens? Because especially, you know, you've been the, this, you've been a mum. Oh, um, it, it was the, it, well, it was also not just, there's absolutely no way this child is being um, abused or neglected because um, I, <laughs> I I just know the I know what that means and I know I haven't done it. But it was also what impact is that having on the child? Because yeah. yes, she was still um, not old enough to understand some of it. But when she says to me, "Why? Why is this happening? Why is Dad doing this? What does he think you've done to me?" You have to answer the child. I, mm. I, you can't you can't dismiss them. Or, or you scare them further. It's been shown that they make up the stories themselves. If we don't tell them what's going on, they they do it for themselves. There's well, a they only there. hear the abusive side of the narrative. They don't hear, you know, so I did share with her. I said, well, Dad and his lawyers are saying that I have neglected you and not looked after you. So she understood that concept. But I always thought, well, that's, that's damaging her belief system in, well, what is neglect? What is yeah. abuse? You know, it was it was the unfairness of that, what you're actually doing to the child as well, not just to me and mm. my family and my parents. And, you know, that's an injustice that I've never got over that, that they pinned that on me very publicly and anybody can walk into that courtroom and listen. You can't write about it, but the whole of Melbourne could have sat in that courtroom <laughs> and listened to our entire journey. And to be set, so they're looking and people looking at you thinking, well, are you an abuser? Did you neglect your child? Yeah, it's a, it's a hard one, and then you really don't want, even if it was the other way around, you really don't want to destroy the relationship between the child and the parent. Like the idea is that you've separated so that you guys can be you can be your own entities and have your own relationships with your children, um, mm-hmm. and for them to start slinging the mud, especially when it's not justified. I mean, I, I know that there are a lot of families out there who have concerns, and I've had them myself. Like you, you get into a, a state where you're going, I can't protect my children all the time. But I guess you've got to a point now where, you know, you've instilled it, confidence in your daughter. You've got to a point where you can, um, you know, trust her to make good decisions for herself. Mm-hmm. So has that, was that always the goal or was that the, is that just the impact? The goal from the very beginning was that the child grew up to know she, she was loved regardless of the arguments or the disagreements between the parents. And, but, but she had rights and 
from the very beginning, I didn't want her to say to her, well, you have rights at school if a teacher is, you know, strange with you or if somebody on the bus is, makes you feel awkward. I didn't ever want to think it was okay to say to her, but you don't have rights with your dad. You can do and say whatever you like. So if he had been loving and caring and only wanted the best for her, we would never have ended up in this battle. So what and that's do- what people get saying to me. He has parental rights. And I said he doesn't have parental rights over her self-worth and her self-belief. That doesn't come first, not in my world. Well, and it actually doesn't come first. It's the responsibility that comes first and it's the child that has the rights. Would you agree? Mm. Yeah. I think people lose a mm-hmm. lot a lot of sight over that is that they they treat their children like possessions and mm-hmm. that they're property and that they can be, you know, manipulated for their own outcomes. Absolutely. And even the system, like the solicitors, I had emails saying you need to just drop the child at the nearest police station like she was a parcel. Mm. It, it, and it... it I kept thinking, why can't you see that you've got a responsibility to this man to help him forge a relationship with his daughter, to protect it, to preserve it? And all he kept doing was making it worse, um, making it angrier, making it having a bigger impact on the negativity of the relationship. He didn't, he didn't, and I, I believe he's a father, this sister. I believe he is. I'm not, haven't heard yet. But if he had sat his client down and said, the first thing is we need to preserve the relationship with you and your daughter and go gently and carefully, whether you're angry at the mother or not. Yes. What I want to do is save this relationship for you. So let's, how do we tread this road so that at the end of the day, the daughter knows you'd love her and you had her best interest at heart? And he never did that. He And he detested me, whether he well admitted it him or not, because I broke the mould. I, I didn't respond how other solicitors would respond. Him. And I think that's the funny thing with self-representing, and I learned that along the way, is a solicitor or a barrister will fire a shot, and if it's another solicitor or barrister, they'll expect, they'll have an expectation of what comes back. But because I was self-representing and not legally trained, <laughs> I shot back as a, a protective lioness mother, and they didn't know what to do with that. They, it, it would put them off. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's why they, you know, there's this clause at the in there that one of them has pointed out to me that, um, you know, they can't they can't talk to me. Mm. They can they can only write to me, and they and I go, isn't that interesting? Because here we are supposed to be working out the issues and being conciliatory, and it's like I'll get a letter to you, and I go, but that's not an opportunity for me to talk, you know, for you to hear my side. All you're doing is telling me. It's mm. a it's a very um, you know, a professional space that is so frustrating because even if you do fire back like, you know, like you have, they don't necessarily respond to that, but they will put time limits on you. Have you know, did you notice that? Did you notice that they, they command you or they speak in a way that says, you like when you use that word need, it's immediately sent up fireworks in my brain um, because mm. that is coercive control. That word mm-hmm. need you must, you should, um, that's all the words that are used in coercive control. And the thing I had to, I had to actually go and seek a little bit of guidance from somebody a bit smarter than me and say, these emails are so aggressive. And yeah. they said, well, what's aggressive about them? I said, they're bold and capital letters, ignore, do not ignore warning with mm. three exclamation marks. And I said, I don't, nobody talks like that in a professional setting, that, that, I would never speak to my customers like that, my clients, my colleagues. It would be seen as an aggressive attack. But in legal um, documents, it's 
it's the norm. Capital letters in bold. <laughs> and it's it's not considered aggressive or attack. It's literally just the way they communicate. Yeah, and, be, and I think because when they're, they're taught like that and when solicitors are talking to each other, they just ignore it. It's just like, oh, that's just part of the the language. But when you're mm-hmm. when they know that they're dealing with a self represented self represented mm-hmm. person, there there should be that level of kindness and and understanding. You know, or, or that generosity of of grace that goes, okay, this is what our plan is, and and speak in normal language. But to come out, and I've had that experience myself, where the first line, and I've just written back going, you better watch your tone and your voice with me because I won't be tolerating mm-hmm. this language. And it's, they don't know what to do with that when you, they meet people. They just shut down and then start getting angrier and more frustrating. Mm. And the problem is it's costing the other person a lot of money for them to deal with that, whereas if they just approached you in that calm, considerate, consultative way, you would be more likely to respond. Um, Absolutely. And no self-representing person wants to delay and keep and say what years. Like I was desperate for ways out, desperate yeah. for a glimpse of, look, let's just sit down and work this out. Um, oh. But they they were going to win at all costs um, regardless of who they destroyed and, and the little person that put in the middle was the child getting yeah. destroyed by the whole thing. And I, we did have a conversation before where I, you know, I said to you that when the mother is being abused, the father is robbing the child of the mother she could be. And I think that there's a lot that needs to be taken away from that. And it's the same vice versa. You know, if there's that conflict, you're not showing up as the best version of yourself because you're dealing with a whole number of layers of stress. Mm-hmm. So you talk about oh. these these games in your book that they play. And I, I don't want to allude to too many because I think you, you articulate them really, really well. But talk to me about that other stuff, like the impact that it was having on you physically, emotionally, psychologically, financially? Because you do, you do go into how do we reduce the stress? I think the only way to describe it is you're breathing and you're existing and people see your physical body, but you, you're really not present in your own life. The pressure of what's pending, what's looming, the noise of the inbox notification of another email warning, do not ignore, the the, the, the constant fear of what is, what is he up to, what's coming next. Mm. Um, you, you, you literally, you're existing you, you, and you are self-representing, you're constantly doubting, can I do this? What will her honour think? Have I overstepped the mark? Have I gone hard enough? Will people see I'm doing this for the child? You're operating, but... But you're not there. You're not there emotionally for anybody. And because it happened to me in the middle of the the massive lockdown, it was the the biggest blessing for me because I got to be an absolute recluse and I didn't have to apologise for the fact that I I could barely get up and get dressed. I could barely engage in a conversation. I forgot birthdays. I'd forget to eat. It it was it was actually a blessing because you could I could hide and I didn't have to explain to anybody why I was falling apart. Mm. Well, it's not the sort of thing that you not that the sort of conversation that you have, is it, when you're sort of meeting people that you only just sort of know or but it does consume your brain. And you realise how often people say, Oh, hey, how are you? And you go, Yeah, I'm great and you hear the words and you and you think I, I'm ready to fall apart and if you're nice to me I'll burst into tears and probably not stop crying. You it it just consumes you. Yeah. But then as well 
you share with family, like family was, uh, my parents were very, very close on it, um, you know, and there'd be a, an event or a hearing or, a um, you know, an outcome and the phone call to have to ring them to tell them and to try and summon the strength to keep them going mm. was ex- ex- excruciating because I desperately didn't want to see my older parents devastated, crying, upset, so I'd try and, you know, build some strength to keep them going. But there were days when I thought, I, I don't want to have to tell people because I have to protect their stress or their rage or their shock at what I'm going through. Yeah, and this is prolonged as well too. This is like days and weeks and months and possibly even years that you're mm-hmm. under this sort of level of pressure. What are, you, what are you doing for yourself in self-care with that? Like what does it look like for you when you realise that you've hit that bottom rung of the ladder? Uh, I, I, the day I sat with my doctor and said, I think I need to be medicated because I'm going in, I'm slipping into a severe depression. Mm. I self-diagnosed myself. I told her all the symptoms and she she said, Grace, I'm looking at you and she said, you're not depressed. You're not slipping away. You're reacting very normally mm. to an abhorrent situation. How you're reacting is how you should be reacting. So she said, I don't want to medicate you. She said, I want you to have some good sleep. Um, and she goes, I really want some support mechanisms in place, but you're responding how you should respond to this. If you were not reacting like this, I'd be more worried. Yeah. And that that gave me a little bit of, um, it was almost a bit of validation. This is horrendous. Yeah. Um, and more then more, um, I guess, uh, energy to keep writing the book. For, for a while I stopped because I thought, no, this is a fairy tale. People will think this is a fiction book and not believe me. Mm. Um, so I kept writing and writing and that was quite cathartic to write it down and read it and, and go, that actually happened. Yeah. Um, but the child, I was blessed with a child who had who was so in, impressively strong um, and resilient that I never had to deal with her crumbling and I think that would have could have just about ended me. Yeah. She um, would hug, kiss, you're doing an amazing job, Mum. <laughs> and the amount of time she said, thank you for fighting for me, was, was just the medicine I needed. Yeah, I've got one of those. And that's, mm. that's, I think that's what keeps you going, isn't it? Is that they can see what you're doing to keep them safe. And, and it, it was absolutely so genuine. So Because like, uh, every so often I'd question and say, are you sure this is what you want? And she'd she'd just say, Mum, thank you for fighting for me. I know you're tired, but mm. please, please don't give up fighting. So that was my medicine. Oh. So I was in, in a second time blessed in my journey. I had an amazing judge, but I had a very strong, resilient child who no doubt will use this one day to to do some amazing things. Yeah. And, I mean, you just touched on a really important point that I think um, is a big difference. I mean, I don't know, there's a lot of research around with men, but there's a big difference the way that women grieve the breakdown of a relationship and, you know, being separated from her children. And it's mm-hmm. described as a grief, like it's a real mm-hmm. loss of ultimately what the family that she had, but also of the future that she thought she was going to get. And mm-hmm. that, you know, that grief is often weaponized as a mental health issue. And mm-hmm. I've seen it happen time and time again where, you know, there'll be these little seeds of doubt of, oh, you know, I'm concerned for 
the child because the mother is so unstable when really mm. she is just in grief and she should be given the time and the support to sort of move through that to become healthy mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. Did you feel that yourself? Uh, I was I was grieving a few things for her. Was, there was a loss of innocence that I was grieving because she was so young and to see so much hatred levelled at me. But I also felt a, a, a grief for the fact that she was losing a relationship with her biological father. I, I, I didn't feel guilty for that, but I was devastated to see that crumbling because... Yeah this little girl will go on and do some amazing things in her life and she needed and does still need a mother and a father proud and, you know, holding her up. And the the relationship was just eroding and there was nothing I could do. I begged and begged this man to just become involved in the child's life and to just love her on her own terms. But that only fueled his anger and hatred towards me. And I had to really grieve the fact that she'd lost her biological father in a safe and secure relationship for now. Yeah. And, and you, it's interesting to see how that will play out for her in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And we've had talks. It's funny, in the book I do mention the day she finally put her foot down and I was I felt like a physical pain in my chest at something he had said to her that was kind of ending all ties. And I turned around to try and soften the blow and say, no, 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 he doesn't mean that. He's angry at me. You know, you'll you'll be able to, in a couple of months, this, the anger will blow over. You'll be able to sit down, have an ice cream and pick up and have a, you know, have a nice. And she just looked at me and said, why would I do that? Oh. And that for me was excruciating because she had she was so accepting that he meant it. It, it almost didn't hurt her. It was, mum, <laughs> we've got what we wanted. I I am where I want to be. And why on earth would I <laughs> put myself through trying to repair that relationship? So she taught me many times about resilience, I, I have to say. Yeah, they've, they've all got thresholds, haven't they? And they'll get to them and, mm. and they'll just, you know, it's and it's not um, it's not as transactional as the relationship which she probably has with her dad, but it's um, she knows when she's had enough by the sounds of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she knew her boundaries from, from quite young but certainly was forced to find them much earlier than most kids should have to. Mm. So I want to just head back to the book because you do talk about all the components, all the systems and the processes and the people that are involved. And, I mean, I have no doubt that you agree it's quite complex. What was the biggest challenge that you found in going through that now that you've sort of written it all out and you can look back? Uh, Probably the, the, the biggest thing to underpin it all is the judge at the end of the day makes the decision on what's going to happen, but you see the judge at the beginning of the journey, um, then you're all sent off into kind of your corners, whether there's interviews, family consultants, um, time, whatever it may be, and you cannot get back to that judge at any point along that journey regardless of the injustice. So when there was restraining orders broken and violence, um, there was civil court, criminal court, you, you can never get back to the judge to say, do you know this is happening? Like this has played out over the last seven or nine months and the injustice of that and knowing that she's going to make a decision but she's not involved in the in the journey that, that's developing and taking place. Mm. I mean, I, I understand the systems and the, and the legislation and how it's state and federal but what do you think 
should happen in that case? <laughs> um, so my my wish is that there's no and and I will certainly upset a lot of family law firms. <laughs> there is. Um, Let's do that. Why is, not? You, <laughs> you no longer can get lawyered up and create a battlefield where the child's in the middle. There, it, it possibly is a even a, a referral through your doctor through to the court system to say this is broken down. Yeah. We're going to need support to navigate. Yeah. And um, there's one person appointed, one person to look after the family unit to get to know mum and dad or dad and dad and mum and mum, the children if it's appropriate, the dynamics to pinpoint um, whether there's, there's volatility, whether there's, um, you know, violence. If somebody's had to flee, then, you know, uh, a grant, mum's fled, she's living homeless, here's the grant. But at some point in this next three to four months as we journey through this with one person looking at this little family unit, somebody may have to pay that back because it's been it's not the it's not the taxpayer's job to have to pay because you've forced a woman to flee her home. But to understand what's gonna work best for the family, what's gonna work best for the child, mm. and report that back over a period of days and weeks to the judge, whoever makes that decision to say, This is as I see it. I've interviewed everybody. I understand the dynamics. I've seen superannuation funds. I've heard from teachers and um, basketball coaches. And this is this is what's in the best interest of this family. And at that point, possibly, if there's not, you know, shocking violence, the family can then sit with the judge and this conciliatory person in a space and say, this is the ruling I'm going to make. This is how it's going to work. Rather than... The poor judge looking and going, hearing shots fired in January mm. and some more shots fired in December and really saying, well, the legislation says dad gets this and mum gets this and sorry, I can't do anything about the money because the child support agency has nothing to do with family court. So yeah. you guys need to go and take that somewhere else. Um, it's, it's an impossible ask of even our our really good, you know, good judges. It's an impossible ask to, for it to work out fair. Yeah, well, and there's so many jurisdictions. I think that's the issue. Well, like you were just saying, there's there's health, there's education, there's finances. You know, um, it, it just it, it doesn't gel, does it? Like it, the pieces of the puzzle aren't sitting together. No, there's too, there's just too many pieces of the puzzle spread everywhere, and that's been my thing from the very beginning. It's not man versus woman; it's the powerful versus the powerless. Yeah, and more often than not, the women are going to be powerless because we are physically weaker, but also because more often than not, we will bend for the sake of the child. And that's where, that's where he got me every time. I would have bent over backwards well, to spare my daughter hurt. But the problem is if you are not bending over, that you are then aggressive. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've often been caught, my assertiveness comes across to men as aggressive. And I can't tell you how many times I've been told, you're too aggressive. I'm going, but if a man said that to you, you'd be fine. Absolutely, um, I would call it hostile. Yeah, and and like and, and also we women as women we also have that protective barrier because of the unwanted attention that we that women constantly get from men because they think that that is their job is to pursue. So not only mm. are they not understanding it from a female perspective, but they're understanding that when we set boundaries, it's not being aggressive. It's just that one you probably haven't heard us the three hundred and forty three times we've actually said it before, and now mm-hmm. we've raised our voice. So mm. <laughs> if that's what it takes to get your attention, yeah, call me aggressive. But I'm not being hostile. I'm just setting that boundary. Absolutely. And one of the one of the people who went after me the hardest was another female and I was quite shocked that 
she made a statement saying, um, she called me hostile. She said, well, you are hostile and aggressive. Um, and I said to her, I've been accused of abuse and neglect of my own child. If you didn't think I was going to come out swinging, you were mistaken. But that is a natural response when you are not doing those things. It's it's those people mm. that try to, to justify it that you go, oh, actually, there's something in that. I mean, and even in the policing world, you sort of get that. When you're accused of something, if you haven't done it, you fire up because mm-hmm. that's what the natural response is. So and the amount of people that said to me, that just be timid, don't get emotional, don't cry, yeah. don't bring emotion. And I, and I kept saying, I'm a human being. I have emotions. Yeah. You're, you're asking me to behave like a robot. Surely that is more disturbing than the fact that I'm emotional about it think what the irony there is that you get told be logical this take the emotion out of it but when it suits them the other person is more than happy to try and manipulate you with their heartfelt pleas or emotions and you know this is for our child and and I go that mm-hmm. is emotional blackmail that is exactly what you're doing so mm-hmm. you can't sort of ask for it and then ask not for it to be included and then oh but I want to use it like it's very hypocritical Mm. Um, and that, I think, demonstrates a lot of the manipulation that goes on. And like I said, like when we try to identify what that looks like, it's, you know, they're asking for one thing, but they're actually doing something else. So the actions and the mm. words don't match up. Now I'm going to give you a magic wand and I'm going to say to you, clear the deck, burn the family court down. How do we rebuild the arena? Uh, we, we never let arguments or disputes about children in, into, a, into a courtroom. It, it, it's removed altogether from a courtroom and it's back into a conciliatory space, but with legally binding obligations. So it'd be like a park, nice, serene. <laughs> uh, it, it's almost a Green like, grass. Um, to, to get to, um, to be allowed to go to court, to fight parent orders, you have to get your yeah, you have to have proven but that process is flawed because you can either not turn up or you go, yes, I'm here, but no, and so you get a 50 eye handed to you and you actually go to court. But, so this, that never works, that mediation, because there's nothing, they're, they're powerless. They want to try and help people be sensible, but they're powerless. There's no legally binding obligations around that. Whereas if it was a conciliatory space with people who knew what they were talking about legally but also um you know from a counseling point of view to say well we will get legal decisions here whether you want to contribute positively negatively whether you want to be aggressive whether you if you want to burst into tears fine but we're going to get over the next three months six six twelve weeks eighteen weeks and we're going to take a family plan to the judge to have a look at now you can either work with me or i can decide for you but i'm going to interview all of you and everyone in, in this child's world, and I'm going to put together what I believe is a plan I'd like you to be better than me and contribute to it, and I'd like you to have a chat with the judge about it. I love I that idea. To, I love it. That That is the only way to do it. And then that conciliatory person who's trusted by the judge has a conversation with the judge, a meeting set up. If mum and dad can be in the same room, great, and if they can't, it's separate. It's A plan is, is, is pinned that has that follows the law and hopefully it's not still the legislation from 1975 but we've heard from dad who hasn't seen his kids for six weeks because 
mum, you know, took them, or we've heard from mum who's been forced into homelessness. Yeah. Or and we've heard from the school teacher who said, I genuinely saw these things. The doctor who said, I witnessed this, and and if there is violence, and if there is, you know, there's domestic abuse going on, well, that that's caught very very quickly, and that person's removed until they've earned the right to contribute back into this, you know, this agreement and this this blessing that should be their family. Yeah. And it is. It's still a family unit. It just looks different, doesn't it? Like it, It's still a unit. It's just a family unit that's in absolute distress and the, the, the lawyers come in and saw it down the middle and make them hate each other rather than come in and say, one person say, come on, little family, yes, you're in distress, yes, you're hurt, but let's not make it any worse. Yeah. You know, let's not make either of you financially destroyed. Let's make sure you've both got somewhere to live. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it's stressful. But let's not pour petrol on these flames. Mm. Yeah. I think if you do pour petrol because of, of the emotion that's attached to these sort of situations, be given the opportunity to apologise for that, you know, or mm. acknowledge the harm that's been done. And, you know, and accept that, you know, people are going to react, but it's not going to last forever. I think it's when it's, like you're saying, it's been fueled and fueled and fueled. And, and like, I've noticed that lawyers in particular have a three-week cycle. You know, they'll write it for a week, they let you respond for a week, and then they'll get back to you the following. So this is sort of, you know, it's a billing cycle as well, every 21 mm-hmm. days. But, you know, a mm-hmm. bit of a, a, a secret there. But it's very much like, and that's what drags it out, isn't it? It's because it's not, you don't have a day, okay, you're turning up in three weeks to this family meeting, you're turning up in another four weeks to this family meeting, and then by the end of it, we should have a family plan. So, I mean, mm. things could move very, very quickly and people could sort themselves out and the resources would be, you know, allocated so that those two people could actually move on. Mm, absolutely. And it can be so much, I mean, what are we spending, 17, $18 billion a year on this? Oh, and, and we're not getting well, to know, any. We're not getting any results, though. Like, and we're, we're still people are still being murdered, and children are being ripped in half. And it, it, this current system is helping nobody. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's damaging everybody it touches. Well, it's also instilling a lot of fear in people. I mean, mm-hmm. generally, women have a general mistrust of men because they do they are scared that they're going to kill them. Um, mm-hmm. and, that, and it's portrayed out through the media. So it's a very mm-hmm. hostile environment that needs a, a drastic intervention. Like mm-hmm. you just can't keep going on like this because women are not even reporting the abuse because no. they don't want to be killed as the repercussion or they don't want to be mm-hmm. heard. Yeah. And I have to say I have fears with this book coming out. Well, and, you know, it, it's a version of the truth. I think that that's what, you know, this is the whole thing of freedom of speech, isn't it? It's a version of the truth. And other people have the opportunity to put their versions out. Um, I think you're very brave and I think it's, you know, it, it's what needs to be done. We can't be held back by, you know, laws of 100 years ago that were only made by men for men to keep women mm-hmm. um, sedated, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And the, th- the injustice of the fact that I'm gagged under the Section 121, but anybody could have walked in and sat in that courtroom yeah. and listened. Yeah. To, to me, I mean, that's archaic. And ironic. <laughs> and yeah. ironic. And the other, the other thing that, that for me was always a shock that there was no chain of responsibility through. So a, a registrar would send my daughter straight back into the house with a very angry man and say to me, I, 
family violence has nothing to do with me. You have to take that up with the judge. But yet I went to the judge for seven or eight months. Yeah. And if something had happened to the child that day, the registrar would have walked away. Or the police constable who said, sorry, we, we take family violence very seriously. There's nothing we can do. If something had happened to the child, that nothing. There is no chain of responsibility for the knock-on effect that anybody is either weighing in their thoughts, their actions, their decisions, or zero decisions. No, there is no responsibility or accountability, and it has it has to be enabled. Yeah, I, I think when it comes to uh, the abuse of the child, though, it, it really does still sit on the physical. They're not looking at the psychological or emotional distress. And they don't know how to prevent it. Like, I mean, if a child presented that was distressed and didn't want to go, you would certainly look at asking the question why. Um, But again, this is where, you know, I I think there's a lot of police services out there that seem to think that, well, you know, family court supersedes anything I can do. When in fact, if if you're given an allegation, you're actually, as a police officer, you're supposed to investigate it. And that might be the fresh new evidence that is required to go back to the family court. No, they they ran for the hills when I begged yeah, them to I, help me. They ran for the hills. And I get a lot of those inquiries where they're going, no, the police won't do anything. I'm going, well, actually, they have to. They are the protective mm. arm of families and communities. They don't do an investigation in the family court. There's no investigation. It's just evidence that's produced. No. So it will fall back onto the states. And I think hopefully with the work that the organisations are doing, you will start to see a significant change in that. And, and they'll start to realise that, oh, actually, we are the people that are supposed to do these, this work and, and do the interventions and do the investigations and, uh, and make sure that the children are safe. Mm, absolutely. And the women absolutely. as well who are threatened and, and the men who feel intimidated, um, you know. But, yeah, it, family violence is predominant and it's ongoing and we, we need some really strong interventions. Um, now, I want to ask you, I think your idea and is fabulous. I love the idea of being in a conciliatory space where it moves along very quickly and mm-hmm. families are given the opportunity to recover and respite. What do you see for your future? It, the whole way through it was how can I help others not go through this, um, whether that be um, an organisation and I've had numerous people reach out saying I will be part of it, I'll be your accountant, I'll donate some hours um, regarding financial counselling and financial abuse, I'll donate some hours doing some some legal work. So for, for the biggest part it was, okay, that can then be how I heal as I help others. But the more I've found out about this space, there are so many people and organisations doing incredible, incredible things we just need to get them all together now under one spearhead. Yeah, I agree. To, to petition to change the, the 1975 legislation. It has got to change and we've got to abolish family court where children are involved. So if I can lend my voice or um, can assist in some way um, to see that happen, that, that, that's, that's now what I want to I want. I don't want to help people get through what I got through. I want to change. Yeah. Yeah. But I also would like to slink away and have peace. So I'm <laughs> I'm quite torn there. I'd love to never have to, you know, think about this again, but it's just it's not reality. Well, I also I also think there's a there is a contract of service that sometimes we, we adopt, but you do also get the option to to resign as well. You know, you've mm. you've been through the hard yards and you've done you've created that little but think bubble that people need to consider. 
um, and you've done as much as you possibly can. And, you know, this is where I guess I am, I'm in agreement. I think there's a lot of organisations out there doing amazing work, but mm-hmm. they're doing it in silos. And every, every, all these amazing silos yeah. and amazing voices um, and they're knocking down the door, but all separately. We need one, one big fish now yeah. and everyone joined together. Yeah. Well, let's, maybe that is, that is the alliance that we're looking for. All right. Well, I really appreciate your time today and, and just explain to it. The book is a very big insight into how to manage not only yourself but the system of family law inside a court, outside a court. Uh, like it was just in, the amount of detail that you've gone into and the storytelling really gives you a sort of, I guess, a feeling of that this could be anyone. Mm. And that, yeah, and that you are capable of going through it, especially when you're armed with the knowledge um, that you need to do the conversations that you ha- you've had to have. You've showed great resilience and um, amazing insight. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for the for the positive feedback. It's been uh, yeah quite quite a journey. Where it's available? Uh, it'll be the the release is Sunday night. It'll be uh, on Amazon. And I'll pop links of uh, where to get the, either the ebook or the printed publication on my LinkedIn profile and also Instagram. But I know I'll feel safer the wider and the further this spreads because the more people that can read it and almost provide a little bit of a protection of an army to say, yep, enough's enough, we agree, agree, will make me feel a bit safer because I, I, am conscious I'm back poking the bear. Yeah. <laughs> we love it. We hope he's growling. <laughs> 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 no, and, you know, and this is it. You, you do hope that they get to a point where they just get on with their own lives and, and do their own thing and, you know, appreciate the fact mm. they've been given a child to raise and to parent. Mm. It can be downloaded for seven ninety nine, which I think is a great price for, um, you know, to get through the family court mm. and a lot cheaper than your, con- your 50, $550 consult with your solicitor. Attached in the show notes is the link to The Child, available on Amazon for $7.99. You can also read Grace's story, but we'd love to hear what you think. So leave a comment below or get in touch with Grace through LinkedIn. This is a Shirepod production in conjunction with Pip Radio. And we'll be bringing you more stories about women's safety.